From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. This season of Innovators on Tap is sponsored by Husco International, a fast-growing, community-oriented company specializing in high-performance hydraulic and electromechanical components. With over 70 years of experience designing and manufacturing these components, Husco takes pride in collaborating with customers to develop innovative solutions. Husco has U.S. locations in Wisconsin and Iowa and global locations in England, Germany, China, and India. A privately owned company that offers more than just a job, a career at Husco is an entrepreneurial experience full of incredible opportunities for growth, creativity, and innovation. Go to husco.com to begin your next adventure and put the lessons you've learned from the podcast to work. How often have you seen a plastic bottle lying on the ground? Did you pick it up? This is the fundamental paradigm at the heart of Plastic Bank, founded by today's guest, David Katz, in 2013. Plastic Bank is a global network of micro-recycling markets that empower the poor to transcend poverty by cleaning the environment. One of the key premises of David's business model is that you'll never clean the oceans by trying to clean the oceans. Instead, you have to not pollute them in the first place, which is a much more complicated problem. So he started with the big sources of this pollution and created an ecosystem where the value of plastic could be fully realized. My conversation with David showed how shared core values can increase the speed of decisions in any company, why the plastic bank operates as a for-profit and not a non-profit, and why he doesn't focus on winning but creating win-win situations instead. He also shares a key realization that shaped how he looks at taking on new challenges. You don't need to be the right person. You just need to start becoming the right person. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, David, welcome and thank you today for joining me on Innovators on Tap. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Beautiful to be here. Well, so I know you grew up on the West Coast of Canada, and I think in what I read is you described your parents, I think they're both as entrepreneurs and and your brother is an entrepreneur as well. When did you realize that you were going to be an entrepreneur? I was 10, maybe a little bit earlier. My, My brother moved on from entrepreneurship, unfortunately, but he enlivened me in the idea in the realm of being that it was possible. Although my parents were, it was his idea of having a poster store, a pizza delivery, all kinds of things that had it sink into my reality, that it was at least a possibility. And what had sunk in with me at that time and what struck me was its unlimited nature that everything, anything, and all things were possible in the creativity of it. At 10, it was simple enough to comprehend. That's really cool. I wish all 10-year-olds could come to that realization. Wouldn't it be a more wonderful place for them? Right. Wouldn't the world be a better place for everybody 
who knew and realized that they were unlimited. David, do you think that's learned or do you think that it's truly just a choice? In other words, this is kind of the nature versus nurture thing a little bit, right? How much does someone's environment influence their ability to make that choice? I'm always inspired by the work of Viktor Frankl, his, many would say, seminal work, man's choice, man's search for meaning. And the space between condition and response is where our life is defined. We look at the work of Covey, where he communicates Frankl as well, this place between condition and response, like the deer in the woods, no space between condition and response. He hears the noise in the woods, he flees. No thought of what it might be. The fundamental difference between man and the deer is that there's a space between the condition and the response. And what we choose to do is what defines our life. Yeah, that is an incredible perspective that I it's a perspective that I look forward to our audience hearing because I think too often we don't consider that. Now, I'm going to shift a little bit and talk about the plastic bank. So you start your TED Talk by describing the problem of plastics polluting our oceans, and you say, we've had it all wrong. The very last thing we need to do is clean the ocean. And I, and when I heard you say that, I was just like, huh? I mean, we don't want plastic in the ocean. Don't we need to clean it? And so it's a very counterintuitive point. And then you go on to explain how it led to the idea behind the plastic bank. So can you give us, you know, a little bit of a thumbnail of connect that concept to what the solution is of the plastic bank? Well, it's the effectiveness of life. I mean, you know, I, maybe it's resonant with me right now because I'm going through the book, maybe for the 10th time. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Principle-Centered Lives, what it is to live a truly powerful life is not out of some system, some way, but out of principles. And one of those principles of life is we communicate, you know, putting first things first and working on what is important as opposed to urgent, where cleaning the ocean is urgent, habitat restoration is so urgent, but what we truly need to be doing as a society is to create the condition where it doesn't need to happen to begin with. I don't want to create a world other than one that the environment doesn't need to be stewarded at all. It should just be happening on its own. So certainly the last thing that we need to be doing is cleaning the ocean. To create systems or thought about working on unimportant instead of urgent is, I think, more counterintuitive. I think it's very self-evident when we communicate that the last thing the world needs to do is clean the ocean. That's self-evident, counterintuitive to clean it. What is the solution then that the plastic bank brings to this that gets at what I'll call the root cause, maybe, as a way to think about it? The plastic bank is a worldwide chain of stores where everything in the store is available to be purchased using only plastic garbage, with monetized ways to allow those who have nothing, including hope, the ability to pay for school tuition, medical insurance, cooking fuel, clean water, doctor care, Wi-Fi, everything the world's poor truly need but couldn't afford, now available using garbage as the input, as the money. You see, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. I'm no longer surprised by how many people say, why don't you just tell those heathens that they should recycle? Don't they know? No, they're human souls, beautiful, loving, living in desperation. And the contemplation of how to feed their children 
What care do you have if your life is in threat and your children are dying? That is the condition that is leading to the degradation of the environment. So that's where we work. That's why there. Now let's be in the consideration of the goals, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, these 17 goals the United Nations set out to help influence humanity. They are in order from one to 17. If we want to affect number 14, which is life below the sea, you have to end poverty. If you want gender equality, you have to end poverty. If you want to help solve the world's maladies, the problems, the inequalities, the malnourishment, the injustice, we have to end poverty. And so that's that's why we do what we do. That is how we do what we do. It's taking what was what was waste and making it worth. I take from an ancient Persian parable, acres of diamonds, where a man who was a sheep herder had his land and so desperate to seek wealth, he sold his land and his goats to try to go and find diamonds. He was told that there were these rocks that would provide wealth. And then, of course, he began searching to become impoverished and die impoverished, where the very man who he sold his land to beneath his feet were acres of diamonds. There is wealth where you are. You need to look and see and receive and be with it. And wherever you are, there is the absolute untold abundance of where you are when you are. So David, at some point you realize that this plastic, there was inherent value there. If there, if someone could build a supply chain to exchange the value and do these things, just like diamonds are only worth something if someone else wants to buy them and there's a vehicle to do that. Can you give us a little bit of insight as to how does this come about that you realize that there's enough tangible value in plastics to make the system work? Because I think to many of us living in the United States, it's hard to imagine that there's you could recycle enough plastic. To oh, when you're going to send out a $300,000 truck and unionized guys and have a, you know, $10 million, you know, waste management system and everything else that occurs and incentives to the city. Yeah. The economics don't work, but when you live in an area where people are making 80 cents a day, it's pretty freaking easy. So it's basically the way we do it here. There's so much overhead and other value that gets extracted. The math doesn't work, but if you fundamentally shift the economy to one where people make almost nothing, all this, so now there's the relative value of that plastic in those countries. It's much higher than it would be, for example, in the United States. Right. Again, it's access as well. There, there. So it's access. So like, you know, within Haiti, you know, we should finish with hundreds of schools. We do in Vietnam. We just entered an agreement for 1,500 schools. So a little different in Vietnam. Education is still supported. Extras are not supported. In Haiti, there's no, no the school. I mean, the government cannot afford schools. I mean, there's no schools. It's a private thing. Like you, you have to pay twenty dollars a month, and your children can go and get basic, basic education. You know, and imagine. I mean, most schools, let's say even a hundred people. Let's say it's a hundred, or most are fifty or so. Twenty dollars a month. It's a thousand dollar a month to run an entire school with all the programs and the teachers and the space. How much do you pay for teachers? I, there's no education in the end. But at least you want a basic. So, so 
200,000 children in a population of 10 million have no zero access at any given time will never end poverty there so so now with with our programs the schools become collection locations so again, now it's access. Now I couldn't pay before, but now I can go collect plastic. And I take it to the school and now I have access. See, it's not just the money. It's what it gets for the money. That's the idea here. You see, it's like medical insurance as well, where people had no concept. No, they couldn't fathom that someone would provide something. If you pay 80 cents a month and if something happens to my husband, I can get $24,000. Uh, uh, they don't believe it to be real. It's not true. But when you can bring that to them, you see that's the access to it. It's not what you, not the money, but what you have access to, what's possible now. That is the incentive. If we look at these sustainable development goals as well, everyone think, oh, challenging. Nothing inside of it is against the laws of physics. Nothing. There's nothing that's impossible. Yet we have so many encumbrances, self-imposed encumbrances. We accept that someone else says it's going to be hard. Oh, you can't do that. I've tried. Oh, have you tried successfully? No, then you have no ability to tell me that it's possible or not. You just tell me that the way you did it didn't work. Great. Okay. What would have to happen for it to work? All possible all requires a different way of thinking to get us out of the problem. So David, along those lines, I read somewhere that when you first had this idea, that one of your first thoughts was, I can't do that. That's too big. But then you went and did it. So how did you overcome your own initial hesitation? Because I think what you're describing is so powerful, but how did you make that transition to, is it too big? And of course I could do that. I was at this event at Singularity University that brought some of the greatest minds in the world together, scientific minds and new technologies and new thinking. And the whole room was with people thinking of different ways to do things, challenging the laws of physics, because even the laws of physics, sometimes are just an internal paradigm where we think that to be true, but often it's proven that it's not true. It was just a way of thinking. So even the laws of physics we get to challenge. Looking for a, a solution to marine debris, I was able to hear myself and go, oh, oh, if we could make it into money, what if every bottle was money for the world? The poor don't throw money away. That in its nucleus was the idea. But how do I how do I transform? How do I evolve it into even like giant money? What if every bottle was like fifty dollars? Would listen to this conversation. If every bottle was worth five U.S. dollars, how many would we see in the ocean or in the environment? We all know none. Okay, that's easy. So we know then it's not the plastic; it's us. So this great idea, this thought of it. I had the tingle, I had the hair in my neck stand up going, oh, oh, places where we could reveal the value, multiply the value, oh, oh, it's a, it's a possible, it's like, oh, okay, hold on, oh, there's something there. But then the second thing was, who the F are you? You're going to go build some global supply chain working with the world's most impoverished and the most dangerous illiterate communities in the world where people shoot each other? And, and it's just sheer degradation. African continent's got 2,000 languages. How are you going to go learn 2,000 languages in Africa? Who are you? Are you going to go sell to the biggest companies in the world? Or are you going to go do that? So I said supply chain, communications, issues, and branding. All of what? What an enormous project. You'd have to, this is like some multinational that would require thousands of, you can't do that. I can hear and feel the hair in my neck soften. 
and the birth of the plastic bag came in the third voice. The gift of it all was that, David, you don't need to be the person who can do it at all. You only slowly, slowly need to become the person who could. But in that very moment, that's where it came real in the world, because it came real to me. And I just started speaking it out loud and engaging the world and communicating what it was that I saw so that it became real for them. And when it became real for others, it became real in the world. You know, as you describe that, it reminds me of something I was asked many times by people who said, I wish you would empower me. And I said, you know, I want you to be empowered too. But some of this is you choosing to be empowered. And you said that you realized you didn't need to be the person. You just had to believe that you could become the person. And that is such a powerful thought that if you just start there, then anything truly is possible. But so often we're so stuck that we're not the person we never even try to become them. And I just think it's an amazing journey that you went on and how it relates to just about any problem you want to apply it to. True. And in my, in my entrepreneurial path, these 30 years of execution, I came to learn as well how much I actually diminished people when people say empower me and I could sit back and go, oh, you get to empower yourself, which is, a, which is just a selfish statement. Selfish. Oh, you get to empower yourself, but yet I diminish you all day long. And when you make a decision, I have you run it by me first so I can give it approval or not. How contradictory. So, so I call BS. So no, you create the space for the person to become unlimited. So when someone comes to me and says, what do you think? I go, that's fascinating. What led you to that? What made you want that? Who else did you go to? What would you choose? What's having you want to come here and tell me anyhow? What has you believe that you, you haven't made the decision yet? So they make the decisions for themselves. That's what they want. They want and they're crying for the opportunity for them to believe in themselves. That's the role of the leader. So I want to get back to the plastic bank a little bit and talk about this idea that it's a for-profit. I, You've said one time that everyone has a favorite radio station. It's called WIIFM. What's in it for me? And that that is one of the reasons that you wanted Plastic Bank to be for profit. And I have to say, David, when I, I first heard your story, and even after I watched your TED Talk the first time, I kept going, you sure this isn't just some really cool charitable organization? And it was, it was cool to me, but and as I listened more closely, I realized, no, this is a for profit. So walk me through, um, why is the being for profit so important? Well, no, why, why, walk, me, walk me through why you think and where you came up with a story that doing good has to be charitable. I spent 65 earnings calls doing what that I thought the shareholders wanted. And in a public world, they tend to be fairly narrow-minded, or at least I allowed them to be. I'm not sure if it was me or them now, but you know, the fact of the matter is, is that no matter what the profits were one quarter, the only question was how much are they going up the next quarter? So as someone, if, if we were talking and having this conversation back when I was still sitting in the CEO chair, how would you ask me to, or maybe help me think about it 
differently, to maybe fulfill my role in leading a company, having public shareholders, but also not getting stuck in in those boundary conditions? If you had the ability to take the next two years to re to reimagine and rethink your organization free of the immediacy of shareholder return, but to create long-term wealth for everyone that ultimately gave you a greater position in society that allowed you to create a firm of endearment where the rest of society also wanted you to win, would that maybe be even a better long-term strategy? Would you be willing to forgo some quarters of profitability for long-term profound success? Possibly, possibly not. I mean, it's a question that some CEOs will answer and some won't. For sure, I got it. It doesn't need to be everybody, but we get to start that process. We start to understand that we can retool a little bit, start to give additional value in other places, take some of that profitability to add value that have and build a market share. Now, certainly in today's realm, unless you're going to be a regenerative business, you're going to be out of business. Sustainability is passe. That's all BS now as well. Everyone sees through the thin veil of the lie i'll do less damage than i did last year what is occurring today what the gen said the millennial society at large is that unless you're standing forward and say i'm going to repair the damage you no longer have a competitive advantage unless you stand forward and say yes look my company stands for the repair of the damage that all of my competitors done that i have done we are now dedicated to the repair of the world that has heart that has purpose what is selling today is purpose that takes a little bit of a retool yeah you know you would have to be if i put myself back in those shoes i would have had to been willing to say that i want that change enough that if in the end the shareholders decide it's not what they want that's okay then maybe I'm not the guy to do this because you've got to decide what is my principles versus theirs, which is back to where you started this. That's really insightful. Well, this is super helpful for me personally, but also I think creating just tremendous insight. If you're enjoying this episode and want to learn more about how you can discover the mindset to pursue the impossible, please check out my new book, The Innovator's Spirit where I explain the beliefs that lead to the behaviors that make innovation possible. It is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Now, let's get back to the show. What I wanna do now, David, is let's switch gears and get into some questions that let us have you give us a little bit more insight into your mindset and how you think about certain aspects of innovation and entrepreneurship. So if you're going to pursue innovation or some, you know, significant creative project, what do you think is more important for the team? The brutal truth or creating an environment of psychological safety? No psychological safety. You create a space where everything is a gift, so everyone receives it as a gift. So even if they are triggered by it, they can be in the knowing that that was a gift that came as an instruction in their life. They get to give up their own way of being. So, so David, when you're creating the space, is there also a need for the other people to choose to be in that space? No, I only hire people that our values aligned. We only take people. We only bring people. Our company is people who are seeking the becoming. 
their growth, their journey. We only hire people who already understand that the obstacle in the path is the path, that if it comes as an obstacle, it's my path. It's for me to go into, to venture into, to be bold, to be courageous, to create, to overcome self. It's not overcoming the problem, it's overcoming yourself so the problem disappears. So if there was a problem that you're trying to face with your team, what approach do you personally like better? The thinking outside the box approach, the I'm going to build a better box approach, or forget there is a box or set it on fire, there's no box at all. What's your personal philosophy towards problem solving? Oh, it's a bit of everything. I mean, you know, certainly you've got to be able to look at what exists now go, oh, what are the learning lessons? What have other people learned? Oh, is there a way to do that? Is there something that we haven't thought? Let's go figure out what's going on in society right now. Has someone else done what we're doing? How do we emulate that? Look at that and create newly. Like we get to do whatever we want. And, you know, part of the philosophy that entrepreneurship is is R&D. And you know what R&D is, right? Rip off and duplicate. So... (laughs) What, what do I need to go and invent stuff for? That's ridiculous. I just want to execute. I just want to be in effectiveness. I want to be in action of things. And inside of all of that, I don't care what it is you come up with. Just do it fast. Stop overthinking everything. Stop making a study over everything. Oh, no, we should go study it and this and that. And we don't want to make a mistake. What? It's impossible to predict mistakes anyhow. You have to be in execution. Come up with some sort of good idea, which you could do in 10 minutes and say, this is a pretty cool idea. Everyone think it's a cool idea? Yeah, it's going to be full of chat. Great. Let's start executing. Start executing and then figure out what it is you actually need to do. At least you're in the process of executing something. In your personal decision bias, I want to understand how you think about risk. So typically I would frame it as, you know, are you someone who's more limiting your downside or trying to maximize your upside? My guess is that you have probably a better way to think about risk. So maybe just, can you talk about how you think about risk? So risk where? Like, you know, so this is the challenge of it, right? So I just think that there's different areas of it. So like, I think ultimately you you risk more by not doing something than doing something. I'm, I'm where I am today because I ultimately decided to become a professional salesperson. I, I became, I came to learn that ultimately what would create success is a transfer of enthusiasm when other people are as enthusiastic as I am about it or more so than the sale was made naturally. I don't convince them. They decide like, of course I want that. And, and, and I know that in that same realm that more people risk saying no than yes. If you say yes, you only risk the few dollars that you might have spent. When you say no, you risk everything. You risk all of the opportunity, all of the joy, everything else it could have provided. So my risk aversion is into saying no, because no goes nowhere. Now, of course, within it, we try to make a smart decision. We want to utilize our resources as best as we can in the world. We're not you know, completely cavalier, but often we're like, yeah, it sounds like a really, what do you guys think? A good idea? Good idea. This makes a lot of sense. Okay, let's go do it. We'll figure it out. Right? And of course, but then we're open for it. We're open for the lesson of it. We don't expect it to be infallible, so we're not attached to it, and we don't place meaning over ourselves. And you see when we're a great organization of core values-aligned people, no one blames anyone. There's no politicking. There's no covering your ass. There's no, you know, you know, winning. Like you walk into the Procter & Gamble office in Geneva, the core values are on the board, and one of the core values is winning. It's not win-win, it's winning. We win, we win, we win. What? Of course the environment's degrading. And in that environment, if you make a mistake and someone else is lost because of you, you get fired. 
So of course they're risk averse because if I don't win, my mortgage payment is on the line. Core value discussion again. Well, David, this has been phenomenal. I want to be respectful of your time. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to put out there or discuss before we wrap this up? Everyone listening has the power to either be a part of the solution or a part of the pollution. And you can simply do that in everything that you purchase. Remember that every time you buy something, someone, someone sees that as a vote. Every time you buy something is environmentally or societally degrading, that's what will continue to happen. You know, your actions, your thoughts, your thinkings, your actions are your destiny. And if you, if you believe that a catastrophe is happening in the environment and you continue doing what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. You can't speak one thing and do something differently. What the world needs is authenticity. Well, David, uh, I just want to thank you for your authenticity. Um, this has been an incredible conversation. I am so happy to have learned more, not just about the plastic bank, but I think your ideas and thoughts and messages, they're way bigger than that. And I think uh, I look forward to sharing them with our audience because I think there's a lot people could use to really to to turn their life into whatever they want it to be in and realize it's their choice. So thank you so much for being here today. I'm super thankful and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Amen. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to David for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his wisdom and incredible perspective on life, including the idea that Choice is the space between condition and response, which is a great reminder that you always have a choice to find a better way. We want to thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow our audience so far, including our sponsor, Husco International. While we are proud of our success, we're just getting started and hope that you'll tell your friends about the show. We would also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com, including transcripts, articles, and an option to sign up for the Innovation Alley newsletter. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.